As I said, we are going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the scripture for us this morning. Uh, We'll pray and then we'll dive into the message. We're going to do 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. I believe it will be on the screen behind me, so follow along as I read aloud. The Bible says this, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busybodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you uh, so humbly, God, as we sang a few few uh, moments ago, how our chains are gone and we've been set free, God, allow us to really lean into that truth as we approach a text like this. God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts, transparent uh, transparency as we approach the scriptures this morning. I pray that we would apply what it is that we are learning today. But God, most importantly, that we would be changed because of it that we would want to be better because of it, that we would want to be more like your son because of it, Lord, that you would receive glory from all of that. So God, I pray that you would remove any distractions from people's hearts or minds, that we would center around your word and allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to minister in us and to apply this truth to our lives. Father, we love you. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we remember a few weeks back, and even we can even look back at verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, in addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us. So we see a prayer request, which centered around the successful spread of the gospel. Paul indicated his confidence that the faithful Christians of Thessalonica were following his teachings. They were doing what he commanded them to do. That's going to be important to remember as we jump into our passage today. But as we move from a couple weeks ago when I, th- I believe Pastor Fred landed on verse 5, if we move from verse 5 to verse 6, we see a very clear shift. This shift from a prayer and benediction to exhortation and command. Paul addresses a specific issue in our passage this morning, that of laziness disorder, and disruption within the church. I want to pause here and say this. I know there are people hurting in this world. We as Christians have an obligation to help as we can. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who belong to the household of faith. So we are called to minister and do good to not only brothers and sisters within the church, but also to all, to everybody in need. Now, I have great confidence this morning that there is not a cold, even one cold-hearted person here this morning. As a matter of fact, I've actually seen many of your generosity time and time again. I know of ways that many of you have helped others that probably nobody else in this room knows about. I know you didn't help to get any attention drawn to yourself, but you helped because there was a need and helping was the right thing to do, and I commend you for that. However, I also know that many of you who sit in this room are troubled by the abuses of people on the different charitable systems that are set in place in the world today as well. So it's easy for me Maybe us, I don't know, I don't want to assume, but it's easy for me to read passages like the one that we just read in one of two ways. 
One, we can read passages like this, remove any and all context of the surrounding verses so that we can then wield these verses in a way that suit our current views in life. I think we can see the temptation to use these verses to back certain political stances or ideas about welfare, government assistance, free handouts. I'm sorry, but the biggest problem with that is rather simple to understand. We have to remember who's Paul writing to in this letter. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church, to believers, to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is in no way a politically driven aspect of Paul's letter at all. Therefore, we cannot use it that way. But not only that, we might also be tempted to read a passage like this with a lot of pride. Yeah, that's right. What Paul said, work hard. Those who don't work, don't eat. You tell them, Paul. You know, I put in a shift. Week in and week out. I put in my 60, 70 plus hour work weeks. I deserve then X, Y, or Z. But again, we have to ask ourselves, was that Paul's point in addressing this topic? General work ethic that we might boast? As the Apostle Paul closes out his letter to the Thessalonians, he reminds us that in the church, this is, this is where we are. He's not writing to the world. Or he's not writing about worldly systems. This is the church, and it's in the church. He reminds us that we need to pull our weight as Christians. It's tempting for us to sit back and coast, allowing everyone else to provide for our needs or do the hard work of ministry for us, but that's not how we're supposed to live at all. As Christians... We need to be a working people. If you want scriptural evidence of the fact that we ought to be a working people, that that is a a mark of a true Christian, I don't have time to go through all of scripture with you this morning. As a matter of fact, I can give you a short list of passages if you want to look these up in your own time. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Chapter 12, verse 11, chapter 13, verse 4, chapter 14, verse 23, chapter 16, verse 3, Colossians 3, 23, Ecclesiastes 9, 10, 1 Timothy 5, 8, Ephesians 4, 28. The list goes on and on and on. We ought to be a hardworking people. And charity, this voluntary giving to, of help to those in need is a crucial aspect of Christian living. It's not meant, though, to be given out blindly or foolishly. We're going to talk about that. So it's my intention with you today to walk through this passage in its original context first, and with that, draw out some applications for us believers today. So if you're a note taker or if you have a handout, you can go ahead and fill in the first Fill in the blank point. Point number one is this. The command is clear. Avoid those who are idle. The command is clear. Avoid those who are idle. Look back with me at verse 6. Paul says this. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle... And does not live according to the tradition received from us. So right off the bat, we see Paul's command. This is not merely just Paul's idea or his opinion on the matter. No, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you. That's a bold statement. Paul commands a withdrawal from those who walk in idleness. So the original Greek term is often translated idle, as we see in our translation, but it it means more than simply lazy or stagnant. The term disorderly comes closer than idle. The Greek word for disorderly meant the following. It meant irregular, without proper order or disposition, tumultuous, lawless, inclined to break loose from restraint, Unruly, as soldiers, you might be out of rank. Deviating from the prescribed order or rule. And when applied to behavior, it generally implied an unruliness, a disruptiveness. 
a lack of submission to the established order. So, this is the word used to describe the persistent behavior of those from who were we're clearly, or, or so from those who were clearly not living according to the tradition received from Paul. There is an unruliness about these particular individuals. They were disruptive to the body of Christ. So I have an example of this. This is the best thing I could come up with to kind of paint a picture of what an individual like this might look like without using specific examples from the church, because I don't want to beat up on the church this morning. But when I would coach, so I coached soccer for, I don't even remember how many years, but for, for a few years. And when I would coach, and anybody who's, who's been a coach in this room understands this concept of, of, there was always just that one or two individuals who were considered bad teammates, right? So these people were lazy. They put no effort into building their own skill or, or let alone contributing anything to the team itself. They complained constantly, but they always had something to say about everybody else and what they were doing wrong. I don't know if you've been around people like that, if you've ever played sports and been on a team with somebody like that, but here's the thing. They're disruptive and oftentimes destructive to the team morale. And just as Paul said that he didn't want to be a burden, that's why he worked and toiled day and night to provide for himself, these people end up being a burden. They are a burden to me as a coach who's trying to move my team in a specific direction, and yet these, these one or two individuals, although they are in the minority, seem to make the most noise and cause the most disruption among the team. Nobody likes those guys. Don't be those. Now, a side note, and I don't want to steal from Pastor Fred's sermon next week as he closes out this letter, but when Paul commands the church to withdraw from these idle, disruptive Christians, remember, we're talking about fellow brothers and sisters here, he does not intend that withdrawal to be permanent. We'll talk about that next week, okay? Instead, he hopes that withdrawing from them, avoiding them, will get their attention. It's going to encourage them to stop meddling and to get to work. This is redemptive withdrawal, if you want to put it that way. And this isn't the only place in Scripture where this type of behavior is encouraged in church discipline. I'm sure we'll talk more about that next week. And while Paul doesn't, speci doesn't specifically mention exactly what this withdrawal or this avoidance should entail, the command is still clear. He says, keep away from them. Avoid them. There are suggestions as to what this most likely would have looked like. One would have been obvious, uh, dealing with them materially or physically, refusing to subsidize the idle Christians with free bread. Okay, So his instruction is clear. Those who are able but unwilling should not be coddled by just giving them more and more and more. The church ought not waste their charity on those who are capable of work, but simply choose not to work. Uh, number two, it could have been as simple as refusing them the Lord's Supper to those who were being unfaithful. Or three, and this is more of the harsh reality, maybe avoiding social contact and conversation with them altogether. These expressions of disapproval would hopefully, as Paul mentions later, would bring shame or awareness on their end. Why does nobody want to be around me? Why does nobody want me to be a part of these meals? Why does nobody want me to be a part of their ministry? Maybe it's because you're not pulling your own weight. Hopefully it would cause you to look inward and say, maybe there's something that I'm not doing. Maybe I am a burden to other people. So maybe, and hopefully as Paul would command you to, maybe I ought to just, you know, keep to myself for a while and, and work on myself and just focus on providing for my own needs first and then I'll try to give of my time and my talent. And here's the thing. It sounds harsh what Paul is saying here, but why would he be so harsh? You know, there's the old expression, one bad apple can spoil the bunch. There's also a Christian version of that. Paul says it in Galatians 5.9. He says a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. It only takes one person one disorderly person, one person walking in idleness within a church that can start to infect, really, that, that attitude, that behavior can become infectious and start to trickle its way through other areas of ministry. And Paul wants no part 
of that. Now, we don't know why there were some people in the church at that time who had chosen not to work. Scholars have speculated. They've speculated maybe one, that because of their belief that the end times were already upon them, some in the church had decided it would be foolish to waste their time on earthly pursuits. They would, they would maybe even, uh, I don't know if this was still like a common thing, but they would be like, hey, remember that Jesus guy, he taught us to not store up for ourselves treasures on earth. Why would I work here and, and make a living here when Jesus is gonna return soon? I'm just not gonna do anything and I'm just gonna wait for him to come back. They may have argued that it was pointless to work. Others, though, may have bought into the Greco-Roman aristocracy, which was adamantly against manual labor. There was a culture surrounding them that was just not into working that much. They liked their lazy lifestyle. Why would I do it if someone else is going to do it for me? Maybe they've adapted or conformed to the culture around them. We don't know, but regardless, the fact is that these people were clearly not pulling their own weight within the church. They weren't working in even the most basic ways, but they still needed to eat. And they expected the church then to take care of them in those areas. Herein lies the problem. If everyone were to adapt that mindset and everyone chose not to work and simply rely on the church to supply them with their most basic needs, the church would not even have the resources to be able to care for any of them, let alone the ones who are in genuine need. That's what Paul's trying to avoid here. So the command is clear to avoid those who are idle. But point number two, instead... Follow the example set and the teaching you've heard. So the command is clear, avoid those who are idle. Instead, follow the example set and the teaching you've heard. Let's continue on uh, verse 7. He says, for you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. When he says we, he's talking about Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the three that were Uh, penning this letter to them and that had done ministry with them in the past. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. President Theodore Roosevelt, he, was, he once said this. I really like this quote, actually. Never read this before until I was prepping for my sermon. He said this, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. He's talking about those armchair quarterbacks. You know what I'm talking about? You're sitting, you're like, I wouldn't have made that pass. And like, you take another drink of your pop and shove chips in your face. It's like, I think the guy who practices throwing the football for a living probably knows what he's doing. But he's saying, listen, it's not that person who counts, okay? The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who, who comes short again and again because There is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Paul was definitely the man in the arena. A man of God who tried and tried and tried in full submission to the Holy Spirit, mind you, to serve the kingdom of God and to serve God's people. He's a voice worth listening to. And his life is one worth learning from. I love the example Paul sets for the church all throughout his life. He didn't simply tell people how to act or tell people what to do. No, he lived it first. He lived it first and he showed the way. Sounds like anybody else we know in scripture? 
And this was a key theme throughout Paul's life. Lead by example. One of the most, one of the verses I contribute to Paul the most is 1 Corinthians 11.1, where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That was Paul's Life motto, really, if you think about it, if you read throughout his letters, this, this idea of, hey, follow my example, follow my lead, do what I do as I follow Christ. That seemed to be a theme of teaching throughout Paul's life. The issue Paul addressing here is the need for individuals to earn their own living and not intentionally burden the church. Paul made a living, not just in ministry. He was a tent maker. Acts 18, verse 3, we learn that Paul had a job, a labor job. He made tents. His intention when he was with the Thessalonian church was what? It was to labor and toil both night and day, not eating anyone's food free of charge in order that the ones who were living or were tempted to walk in idleness would see them as an example. All three of them, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, we learn from Paul's own words, had every right to receive financial compensation for the ministry they were doing amongst the church in Thessalonica. That's an acceptable practice today as well. Paul teaches about that in other areas of scripture. But in this particular instance, this particular congregation, this situation which was unique, They chose to abandon that right for the sake of setting an example for those who were clearly taking advantage of the church. This is an example of Paul, as it says in another one of his letters, becoming all things to all people. He's like, oh, there's people among you not doing this. I'm going to live that out for them so that they can learn from me rather than just say, hey, stop doing that or hey, do this. Let me live this by example. Now, what does this mean for vocational pastors in ministry today? Is is Paul saying, do those who serve in pastoral ministry have, have to support themselves by means of another job like Paul did? Is it wrong for, for me to accept pay from the church as a, as a pastor on staff here? Not at all. Paul clearly says here that he and his companions had the right to be fed or supported by the church. They chose not to exercise that right. In other areas of Paul's letters, he says that those who work at preaching and teaching should make their living that way. It's not wrong. As a matter of fact, it is biblical for those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching within the church to be supported by the church. That's a sermon for another time, but I don't want you to get it confused. You know, Paul's over here saying that he worked another job. Uh, Marty, Greg, Fred, what are we doing paying you guys? Okay, I don't want you, I don't want you to hear that. But apparently... Even when Paul and his companions were with the Thessalonians, they had instituted a very simple rule. If anyone is unwilling to work, he should not eat. Now, it's important for us to be clear on what Paul is and isn't saying in that simple command. Okay, Paul is not saying that people should never accept help from the church. Far from it. One of the greatest privileges of the church is that it needs to help those who are in need. It gets to help those who are in need. As a church, we have a responsibility to care for other people when we see a need present itself. That may be as simple as, you know, giving somebody a ride, making a meal, uh, I don't know, doing repairs at a house. You know, we just had that, that bad storm, and I saw a lot of people step up to the plate within this church body alone say, hey, is there a need of anybody in the church? Like, we can come help out. Don't allow this sermon to ever prohibit you from asking us for help. That's not what this sermon is for. But again, it's not just the example they set forth. It's not just the example that Paul, Savanus, and Timothy were giving. There was a command, there was a teaching that came along with what they were living out. And the concept was simple. If you have the ability and the opportunity to work, to contribute, but you choose not to, you should not receive any support from the church. You should pull your own weight first. Now, it's good to try and keep in mind what the early church's worship probably looked like. 
When they met for worship, they often would share a meal together. Now, praise the Lord for that, because I think this is where the idea of, like, church potlucks come into play and stuff like that. We're trying to just practice what the early churches were doing. I'm cool with this happening every week. But seriously, put yourself in those shoes. If we meet once a week and every Sunday there was going to be a meal that fed everybody that came week in and week out, there's a lot to contribute to that. They were doing that on probably a daily basis, or at least they were trying to. Okay, so that's a little bit different. But with these meals, everyone was contributing something. And then they would enjoy it together as a body, as a family. Unfortunately, though, there were those working the system, enjoying the food without really contributing anything themselves, without having unwilling to work in their own personal life. And then they'd show up to the church and say, hey, I'm one of you. Give me some bread. But we need to be careful here. Remember, this command applies to those unwilling, not those unable. Whether because of physical limitation, lack of job opportunities, we don't know. But there's some discernment here. The church was not wrong in helping those who were in need, who for whatever reason were unable to support themselves. That's exactly what the church should do. But for those who were simply preying on the generosity of others, Paul has no time and he has no sympathy. These people should receive no, no support whatsoever. Not only that, we should avoid these people. Avoid them so that they might turn from their sin. So what about those who are idle? See, Paul kind of brings up this idea that, hey, avoid them. Not only that, don't just avoid them, but follow the example I set for you. But what about those who are idle? Just avoid them? Does he say anything to them directly? Point number three this morning is this. A warning to those who are idle. Work quietly and provide for yourselves. A warning to those who are idle. Work quietly and provide for yourselves. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people. Now he's talking to them, those who are walking in idleness. We command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. That's a very clear, distinct, not holding anything back command to those who are trying to work this system. It seems, according to Paul, that because these people were no longer busy at their regular and provisional work, they had found other ways to occupy their time. Unfortunately, this meant that they began meddling in other people's business. There's that old expression, the idle, idle hands are the devil's workshop. When you're not busy doing the right thing, very quickly you might find yourself busy doing some of the wrong things. And clearly, this was something that was happening within this church. Those who were walking in idleness were not just simply stagnant or not pulling their own weight. Oh, they found a way to make themselves busy. And they were busy in everybody else's business. And because of that, they became a burden to the church. Paul holds nothing back. He says they are, busy. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. That's Paul. I, I, I don't know. That's pretty harsh. I think sometimes we work harder at being in everyone else's business than we, than we do at minding our own. I think we can all relate to that at times. That's very destructive to the church. I'm not even talking about in, in the world at this point. In the world, 100%. But within the church, that's a problem. And that's a big problem if amongst like-minded believers, Christians. So how do we know whether or not we're keeping busy or whether we've become busybodies? I think here's a simple test. Answer yourself these questions and be honest, be transparent. That's what I was praying about this morning. Be transparent with yourself. No one likes to hear messages like this, but we still have to, and it, hopefully it causes you to look inward. If not, Paul would probably say, hey, you're not busy doing the right things. You're busy meddling in other people's business. So think about yourself here. Answer these questions. Do you spend more time focused on the things you need to be doing for the Lord or the things you think other people should be doing? I don't know about you, but sometimes week in and week out, I'm hearing a sermon, 
and immediately my mind thinks of someone else and I'm like, man, I hope they're listening. And what am I not doing at that point? Listening for myself, right? Do you spend your time thinking about all the ways other people aren't pulling their weight in their own personal lives or about what you need to be doing to make sure you're pulling your own and providing for yourself? Do you tend to look more closely at the lives of others or do you turn to that same magnifying glass inward? Busybodies spend all their time trying to fix or at least point out the flaws in everyone else and they have a lot of time to do that because they're not using that time to do what they need to be doing in their own lives. And unfortunately, we have access to one of the best tools to do this and that's social media. This is what we do. This is what social media is. It's no longer just media that you use to be social. It's media that you use to be a busybody, if we're being completely honest. This is what we do. And it's a problem, not just that the world has, and not that just what everybody else has outside of these four walls. It infects Christians too. It was clearly affecting Christianity back then, this idea of just always being not busy doing what you're supposed to be doing, and then in turn, in your idleness and, and, and not really doing anything, the devil somehow just draws you this way, and you start to fill that time with stuff that you shouldn't be doing, and you're meddling in other people's business, and you're not contributing anything. And then the worst part about it is when you find yourself, hey, I don't really have even my most basic needs. Hey, church, where are you at? You're supposed to be helping me out here. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're not even contributing to yourself. As a matter of fact, everybody else in the church shouldn't even be, they should be avoiding you. So the people who weren't pulling their weight were not just sitting at home doing nothing. They were putting their time and energy into things that were destructive instead of working at the things they should have. This should be a solemn warning to every single person in this room, and it's this. Just because we are constantly busy does not necessarily mean that we are engaged in the Lord's work or that our busyness is even pleasing to God. I'm going to say that again just in case you missed it. Just because we're constantly busy, which everybody in this room, if I were to ask you, and we are in the summer months, this is supposed to be the downtime, but if I ask anybody in this room, how busy is your schedule? You'd be like, oh, you don't even want to see my calendar right now. But just because we're busy does not necessarily mean that we're engaged in the right things or things that are pleasing to the Lord. It's important that we direct our time and energy into things that serve God's kingdom rather than those that undermine it. Now, I'm going to have a moment of transparency with you here. Uh, when I got back from Mexico, so for those of you who don't know, uh, we had a team go down to Mexico I don't know, about a month ago, a little less than a month ago. Um, when I came back, I found myself very desensitized to American culture, literally just being outside of it for a week, and then coming back in, you realize just how much your brain shut down that week, in a good way, okay? And I came back, and I was actually a little bit depressed. If, again, I'm just having a moment of transparency here, and if you ask any member of the team, they would probably be honest with you and say, yeah, I struggle with a little bit of depression too when I came back. And a friend asked me, uh, this was a couple Sundays ago, she was very curious about, like, what do you mean? You talked about this desensitization and your adaption back into American culture. Like, what? Can you explain that more? And so this is what I said to them. I, I, I was driving at the time, so I clicked voice to text, and then I just, just word vomit. You know what I mean? I was just working through my thoughts. And this is some of what I said. I said, you know how the writer of Ecclesiastes says that everything is vanity and meaningless? That's kind of how I feel about the American lifestyle now. See, when I was down in Mexico, I was surrounded by people that are content with literally nothing or next to nothing. And the reason they're content is not because they prefer things to be that way. I don't know. But that's literally all they know. I guess you could say ignorance is bliss. I don't know if that's a fair way to describe their mindset, but I think there's something there. The amount of distractions that we have day in and day out in the American life is astounding. It's like my brain went into overload whenever the wheels of the plane touched down back home. Immediately, my mind was flooded with all the things I've, con I've convinced myself need to get done. I need to do this. I need to do that. I think it's okay to have a busy schedule, 
But at the same time, but this is before I wrote anything for my sermon, by the way. I think it's okay to have a busy schedule, but at the same time, what am I ultimately sacrificing with all this stuff that won't really matter in 100 years? It's really hard to describe. I can't pinpoint specific things that annoy me other than the fact that everybody is so obsessed with stuff here. The time crunch that everyone, including me, seems to be on every single day for all this stuff. It makes my brain tired. I began to really understand what really matters is the gospel, gospel conversations, discipleship, and just day-to-day relationships. I mean, the comforts that I have pale in comparison to the work that needs done for the gospel. So in the busyness of life, am I busy working in order that my life can be more comfortable? Or am I busy working in order that the kingdom of God may be advanced? I'm okay with work ethic. I'm okay with full schedules. But as long as those schedules are full of things that truly matter, and I think that's it. Paul was a busy guy, clearly, but he was busy doing the work God called him to. He wasn't busy building up his 401k, his retirement, making additions to his house, trying to save up for that new car, worried about his vacation budget, prioritizing all the sporting events for him or for his kids if he had any, anything like that. And I really don't think there's anything wrong with those things in their place, but if that's all I'm working for, if those things take up the majority of my time and effort, I feel like that's the American lifestyle. Work so that you can have. I want to work so that God can have. Not that he needs anything from me, but work so that he can have the glory that he so rightly deserves. I guess what I'm trying to say is is I love how desensitized I am to think I still need all these things, all this stuff. And it's okay to have those things, but that's not what I'm living for, working for, or prioritizing in that was all before I wrote this sermon. And then I'm reading the sermon. It's like God really kicked me. Because I found myself, even though I was wrestling with all this, slowly fading back into the things that I was so depressed about when I first came home. I found myself busy with all this stuff that some of it was good, but a lot of it was just, this doesn't really matter. I could be discipling somebody right now instead of X, Y, or Z. I could be helping out at the church more or signing up for this event or whatever. There's things that need to be done. So even if you're not working, Paul understands you're still going to be busy. Everyone's busy. Busy bodies are busy. But not doing what they ought to be doing. I want us as a church to be busy doing the right things. And in this instance... Paul's exhortation to those who are actively living disruptive lifestyles within the church is this. Be quiet. Get to work. Provide for yourself. It seems harsh, and yet this is a command that had clearly been given on various other occasions during their stay in Thessalonica, as well as this was addressed in his last letter, and people still weren't getting it. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul is urging Timothy in this passage to hold fast to sound biblical teaching in the face of those who refuse to hear the truth. He even says in chapter 4, verse 6, this isn't on the screen, the uh, 7 and 8 will be, but in in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have followed. That's my prayer for you all this morning. That's my prayer for me. Listen, there's some harsh stuff that I got to bring you this morning, but by doing that and proclaiming that to my brothers and sisters here, that I might be and you might be nourished by the good teaching and the words of faith. But 1 Timothy 5, 7 and 8 says this, Command this also so that they will be above reproach. If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I think Paul had a problem with laziness and idleness within the church? I think so. It seems harsh, but what a profound biblical truth. So to those unwilling to do the work, both to simply provide for yourself as well as your family, head down, shut your mouth, get out of everybody else's business, do what you need to do, and provide for yourself. That's a lot to digest. 
We're going to be making some applications here in a moment uh, as I close. But before I do, I want to look at the final verse of our passage. Because we've taken a good chunk of our time this morning speaking about those who are idle or who, who live disorderly and disruptive lifestyles within the church. But I don't, and I don't think Paul wants that to overshadow those on the other side of this conversation. There are many in the church that clearly obeyed Paul's command and followed his example. They did work quietly and provide for themselves. They were living according to the tradition received from Paul. And what tradition was that? 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15. This is from Pastor Greg's sermon a few weeks ago. He says this, But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning... God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught. The traditions that these Christians on the other side of this conversation were living according to were that of the gospel. They were walking worthy of the gospel. That's the title of our sermon series. So, point number four and lastly this morning, a word to those who do good. Stay strong and keep going. A word to those who do good. Stay strong and keep going. It's very similar to what Paul says in verse 13. He says, but as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. See, I debated on whether or not to include this verse in my sermon passage for the week because in a way, this this short verse, it kind of acts like a hinge between my passage and the final verses of this chapter. So it could kind of go either way. Um, I know it can be easy though to those who are on the other side of this conversation, which point number four relates to. I know it it can be easy to lose heart or grow weary or lose enthusiasm for doing what's right especially in the midst of those who are taking advantage of everything around you. It's easy to grow weary. Paul's instructions, his encouragement, and his command to those who are doing good is simple. Don't ever get tired of doing it. You keep going. Do not in any way abandon your efforts. Just because there are those around you who won't work and you're to avoid them does not mean that you quit doing what is right and what is good on behalf of those who are in genuine need because there are genuine needs out there and we need to be a working people in order to provide for those needs. Some translations say do not grow weary in doing what is right. I know for a fact that there are those here this morning that in addition, in addition to providing for themselves, mind you, also faithfully serve week in and week out. Some who aren't even in this room right now because they are serving. To those who put their heads down and work, always willing to give of their time, their talents, and their treasures, keep going. Continue walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Know that we see you, and we love you, and we honor you, and we're grateful for the service. We're grateful for your work. We're here for you whenever you need anything. And you are not and will not ever be seen as a burden to this church body. Now, I know this sermon offered some harsh teaching here this morning. uh, To be honest, I didn't really see the Apostle Paul holding back any punches. He had something that needed addressed in the church, and he hit it head on. My intention here was not to lazily, funny enough, uh, paint with a broad brush any particular issue that we see here at Redemption Church. This is not to call out anything specific. This is something the universal church, I think, needs to hear. I just so happen to preach here. Sorry, so you had to listen to it. But we need to understand that just because we don't like the way something is worded in Scripture doesn't mean we get to ignore it, change it, skip over it, not address it. We face it head-on with humility and with grace. That said, I would like to very quickly make some applications. So if you're a professing Christian here today and you find yourself in a position where you are living idle, you are walking in idleness, if you were ever to need it, do you think the church should really provide for you? I want you to genuinely ask yourself that question. Should you eat? 
Do you meet the requirements according to Paul as someone in genuine need, or are you walking in idleness, not even providing for yourself, unwilling to do the work, not contributing anything to the local church, and then in return, expecting them to bail you out in times of need? Ask yourself, am I really walking worthy of the gospel? Now, it's interesting, though, as I contemplated how to approach this application, I was a little hesitant. I'm not, I'm not out of fear of backlash, anything, but out of fear that that might fall flat. Because truth is, Redemption Church is located in a traditional American middle-class area where physical and material needs might not be as relevant. I'm not in any way saying there aren't people here in our community and within this church that have genuine need. That's not what I'm saying at all. There are, quite honestly, I think the Christians in this area, this church specifically, but also our other brothers and sisters from other congregations are doing a great job of meeting those in genuine need. I really do, and I applaud you for that. I thank you for that. But the majority of us do work our jobs, provide for ourselves and families, and we go about our business. So I asked myself this question, and I talked to Pastor Fred about it, and I said, can, I, can this passage be applied to spiritual need? Not just physical and material. And the answer, we concluded, was absolutely. It's an application point. It's not what Paul's addressing here, but it can be applied to our spiritual lives. So, that said, if you're a professing Christian here today, and you walk in spiritual disorder and idleness week in and week out, you in no way provide for your own spiritual needs, you aren't seeking out discipleship, genuine discipleship, not meeting a friend for coffee and talking about everybody else's business. I'm talking about real discipleship. You're not in your Bible your prayer life is non-existent. You're numb or complacent with the things of God. You rarely, if ever, give of your time, talents, and treasures on, to, on behalf of the local church. And yet continue to expect and rely on the church to meet your spiritual needs. I ask you, should you eat? An example of this could be someone who is constantly, consistently asking for prayer and yet never praise themselves about their situation, does nothing to try to better the situation in any way if there are ways. Because here's the thing, praying hard, or, or praying is hard. Praying is carrying each other's burdens. It's almost like asking somebody, hey, would you go into battle with me and then pushing them to the front lines and staying back here and saying, you do the fighting. Yeah, I'm going to say it. This is one of the reasons why I think church membership is important. I think you could point to a passage like this. It's not black and white there, but what does church membership do? It opens you up to accountability and contribution. You sign a covenant that says, I ascribe to the core values of this particular body or wherever else, and I say, listen, I am willing to contribute to that as a brother and sis or sister in Christ, and I want accountability in these areas. And if I don't meet those requirements, I open myself up to the church saying, hey, why aren't you doing X, Y, or Z? Or why aren't you contributing here? Or what's going on with your walk? And if you're not actively engaged in those areas, Paul is saying you're opening yourself up for redemptive withdrawal. I'm here expecting everybody to meet my needs and provide for me physically, materially, or spiritually, and yet I'm going to contribute nothing. Paul says, avoid those people. There's a lot of things going on at Redemption Church. We have VBS coming up. There's help always needed with kids' ministry. There's the hospitality team. There's the worship team. There's security. There's cleaning the church and groundskeeping. We're going to be doing some landscaping here middle of July, and after that's done, we need someone to keep that going. Not only that, and I'm missing some, some ministries here. This is just what I was jotting down this morning. Not only that, this work is going to double when we plant in Sarver, when we start services in Friday, on Friday nights. But let's be fair to say no, no one's exempt from feeling convicted this morning. We all fall in and out of idleness throughout our lives. Maybe you're here right now and the Holy Spirit is convicting you. So where do you begin? What do you do? To those who are saved, washed clean, you're no longer under, under the penalty of sin, I encourage you to work with integrity and work with joy. We can read all the way back in Genesis that sin is what corrupted man and his work. You can read about that in, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. We were put here on earth to work and keep, keep the earth. 
And as a result of sin, however, man's workplace was now under and, and, and is now under God's punishment too. Uh, uh, God says in Genesis 3, verse 17, the ground is cursed because of you. The result would be frustration and futility. You will eat from it by means of painful labor in all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. That's verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. So after a life sentence of hard labor, Adam would die and be buried in his workplace because of his sin. You will eat the bread by the sweat of your brow, verse 19, until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Praise God for Genesis 3.21, which presents the gospel, really, in a very beautiful way. It says, the Lord, however, made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them in their nakedness and in their shame. It's through this act that God illustrated the saving work of Jesus Christ, who would bear the curse of our sin by dying on the cross and would in turn clothe us in his own righteousness when we come to him by faith alone. That's a beautiful picture of how the gospel can tie to our work ethic. Where is the gospel in this message? It's right there. So the key to a balanced life of work and rest is to center our lives on our communion with God and living out his will for the rest of our lives. We're no longer under the curse of sin when we are in Christ Jesus. With God, uh, with God restored to the center of our lives, with our work directed primarily to his glory and his service here on earth and with our rest devoted to enjoying God and giving him praise, we can experience joyful redemption in our work in the most basic way. So when you clock in tomorrow on Monday, you remember that truth. We can truly work with integrity and joy because we're no longer under the curse of sin and what sin did to work. We can now work freely and enjoy it and work with integrity and joy by whatever we do. Whatever you do, we do it from the heart as if something done for the Lord, right? So church, take these truths to heart. Apply them where needed. Reflect on am I walking in idleness? Better yet than that, word it this way, am I walking worthy of the gospel? Am I walking worthy of the gospel?